From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The Victorian state election is on November 26, and while Labor is the clear favourite to retain power, Daniel Andrews' government is under pressure on a number of fronts. Melbourne endured record lockdowns, and the pandemic highlighted critical problems in Victoria's healthcare system. The Premier is a polarising figure, but the Liberal opposition, now led by Matthew Guy, has struggled to cut through in recent years. Andrews is seeking a third term. However, many voters are disillusioned with the major parties and the election will be a test for a clutch of Teal candidates and other independents, as well as the Greens. In this podcast, we talk with Tim Colbatch, who's former economics editor for The Age and a keen election watcher, Cos Samaris, a director of the Redbridge Group, and Samaya Alambi, state political reporter for The Age and author of Daniel Andrews, the revealing biography of Australia's most powerful premier. We begin with Tim Colbatch. Tim Colbatch, can you begin by giving our listeners uh, an overview of this election? Well, I suppose we should start with the fact that Victoria has become very much a Labor state. Labor has won 14 of the last 15 elections there, federal and state. The Liberals only won. And the polls so far in the campaign suggest that will be exactly how this one ends up. In 2018, Labor won in a landslide. Daniel Andrews had come to power in 2014 in a fairly close election. But in 2018, he expanded that with getting 57.5% of the two-party preferred vote. He, He won 55 of the 88 seats in Parliament. The coalition was knocked down to just 27 with six crossbenchers. And basically, it looks like we're going to have a result something like that this time. So you don't see the chance that he'll be forced into minority government? It's a very remote chance. The average of the five polls over the last two or three weeks have given Labor 56% of the two-party preferred vote. So that's a fairly commanding lead over the Liberals. There is some chance that he will lose seats to the Greens and to independents in Labor-held seats particularly in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Labor will govern as an absolute majority unless they lose 12 seats, and it's very hard to see them losing 12 seats. So what parts of the state and what voter cohorts will be particularly important this time to watch? Well, I think a lot of them will be. I, I will start with the bush because it's there's always surprises in the country seats, and the, it does seem the country did not swing to Labor as much as the rest of Victoria. And uh, it's possible that it was less affected by COVID, so it won't have the reaction to it that we've seen in some of the western suburb seats. But there's some country seats that are going to be fairly crucial, like Ripon and uh, South Barwon. In the western suburbs are particularly interesting because for many years, Labor has always held those seats very comfortably. And the idea of of them rebelling against Labor rule has been implausible, even though they were routinely neglected again and again, because they were safe, rusted on seats. They didn't get the infrastructure. You have a place like Melton, 70,000 people growing very rapidly. It still has only a country train service. It has no TAFE. It has no hospital. And it's unbelievable. You couldn't imagine that happening in a marginal seat. And in 2018, 
some independents formed a loose coalition, came within 5% of them winning the seat, and Labor doesn't seem to have, certainly hasn't satisfied them. It's made promises about what it will do in future down the track in 10 years' time, but that's this kind of seat that they might lose. And there's Werribee, uh, Point Cook uh, are also seen as seats that strong independents are campaigning in. Well, apparently Labor has a list of target seats to protect, a list that excludes some seats that could be lost. Now, it's not a a regional seat, but for example, I've I've seen mention of Hawthorne, which is a Labor seat, not on the target list. How can that be so? Well, it wasn't on the target list last time and I won it. (laughs) I can understand that, but if you hold it... You'd think you'd want to keep it. I think they thought it was an absolute fluke that they won it last time, and uh, that it will go back to the either go back to the Liberals or they will at least fight it out with the Teals. So there are only four Teal independents standing in this election. So the, the Victorian campaign finance rules are very restrictive in terms of new parties. They're generous to old parties, but they're very restrictive to new ones. And so that greatly limits the scope of the independents to run the kind of campaign that they did at federal level. There are just four of them standing, all in basically liberal seats, including Hawthorne, held by Labor, but seen as basically a liberal seat, Caulfield, Mornington and Kew. Can you just elaborate on that point about how the campaign uh, rules work against the smaller parties more than the obvious ways? Uh, there's an exemption. The campaign funding is limited to something like donations of 4500 roughly, from any person to any candidate for the length of the campaign. So not, not just a person, but an organisation as well. So, for example, Climate 200, which was a heavy donor to the Teal independents at the federal election, is limited to $4,000, $4,500 per candidate this time. So that limits their scope, and they've targeted just four seats. Do you think, uh, even taking into account the problems that smaller players face, that voters in Victoria in large numbers will be looking for alternatives to the main parties? I think that's very clear. Uh, We saw in, for example, in the 2018 election, 78% of Victorians voted for one or other of the major parties. At the federal election in May, only 66% did. So the number voting for Greens, minor parties and independents has jumped from 22% to 34%. Uh, All the evidence suggests it'll be something like that this time as well. Now, COVID worked very well for state governments in 2020, Queensland, that incredible landslide in WA. By the time we got to 2022, it wasn't working for incumbents. South Australia, the government was defeated and, of course, the uh, the federal lost by the Morrison government. Do you think that COVID and the legacy of COVID and Andrew's record in managing COVID, controversial record, will be a factor in this election? Or do you think people have moved beyond COVID in Victoria? Yes and yes. It has to be a factor because it was such a searing experience for a lot of people. And there's no doubt that it polarised Victorians. And those who were pushed out, um, those who were most angry, are still angry. And uh, they will be campaigning against Andrews. But I've got to say, the evidence suggests that their campaigns will be fairly futile. There doesn't seem to be that sort of voter support behind them for them to make a difference. What really comes out strongly, I think, from the polls is that 
for all the mistakes that were made, they ran it terribly, both in terms of the civil liberties that were infringed in the process and, and also Victoria's death toll from COVID still is way ahead of the rest of Australia's. Even in the last six months, uh, they've had 63% more deaths per million people than the rest of Australia. But there seems to be a kind of tacit agreement between the government and the voters that the government will do nothing and the voters will take no action. The Liberal Party seems to have had terrible trouble in recent years cutting through to voters in Victoria. Why is this so? Why is it in such a shambles? Well, I think for 30 years the Liberal Party in Victoria has been preoccupied with internal fighting and ideological wars and narrowing the scope of Menzies Broad Church to uh, a much more ideological, Christian-influenced group. And the more they do that, of course, the more the moderates desert the party. And it's become, as it has here in the ACT, it's become a, a party that no longer represents its base. Uh, Nick Griner made that point about the, the Liberals once. That the, the problem of the Liberal Party was that its activist base was very different from its voter base. And this is still particularly the case in Victoria. And will have an effect on this election. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, Matthew Guy is not seen as a credible leader by many people. He's way behind Andrews in the popularity polls, and Andrews is not a popular leader by any means. And yeah, they, they unfortunately, one of the, the consequences of them losing Hawthorne last time was that they lost John Pesuto, who was the leader of the moderate grouping within the parliamentary party. And a candidate again. And a candidate again. And he's tipped to win Hawthorne again this time, but he's uh, he was tipped to win it in 2018. Too. has one of those teals on his tail. That's right. Now, just finally, one of Labor's key election promises is to start construction of the suburban rail link, which you have previously branded as the worst transport project Melbourne has ever seen, in your words. Why is it so bad? It's extremely expensive. It's a 26-kilometre tunnel in an arc well out of away from Melbourne, some like 20, 25 kilometres out of town. And it, it's basically it links up a number of marginal Labor seats. And the PR is that it will take those local centres like Box Hill, Ringwood, then Waverley, and turn them into big shopping centres, office centres, etc. give Victoria a Parramatta in southeastern Melbourne. It's very hard to see that happening. Uh, it'll cost an awful lot of money. It's Even its proponents estimate that it will cost more than $30 billion uh, for a 26-kilometre link, which is not going to be used a great deal. And the Auditor General in Victoria had a look at the business case. The business case found it was a positive impact, but he said well, they only got that conclusion by not using the template of rules that you use to, for cost-benefit analysis. And when you put in Treasury's rule book, the costs would be double the benefits. Is the sports rorts on steroids? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's a huge amount of money, Michelle. It, it, it would crowd out other better transport projects. Tim Colbert, thanks very much. Cos Samaris, your firm Redbridge has been doing a lot of research in this election. We're still some time away from the end of the race, but what are the main features that have emerged so far? Main features are similar to what we all saw at the federal election, where, where the electorate is fragmenting. We expect a larger other party vote, a suppressed major party vote, and a very patchy result across Melbourne and Victoria as a result of that. 
What are the key issues in this campaign for voters? Specifically, have the lockdowns left a legacy for the Andrews government or are voters now mainly just looking forwards? There is a legacy. I'll get to that in, in a moment. The main issue that is animating everyone out there is cost of living, and it cuts right across all the sort of income bands, um, right up to middle to high income earners. That is the most most common issue that is raised with us, whether it's in the, in a qualitative space or quantitative space. It is obsessing a lot of people's daily existence. Uh, we, when we when we conduct focus groups, particularly in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, some of the stories that we are told by participants are, are quite heart-wrenching. So the economic pain that is out there is is significant. And compounding that is obviously what everyone has endured through the pandemic. So you get you've got an electorate that is extremely fatigued, suffering what I would define as a form of PTSD that is going to have an impact on the election. And I think that it, that that's going to manifest in a couple of ways. There's a, a sizable portion of the voters out there who have an issue with the Premier as an individual but equally have the same issue with the opposition leader. And so I think it's going to be a contest of who do they hate the most? <laughs> and, and, and that will then obviously influence their vote. Just on cost of living, it's interesting that what we've seen in the national polls is that people are really concerned about cost of living, but they don't seem to be uh, taking it out on the federal Labor government. Do you think that it'll be a different pattern in Victoria, that they will take the cost of living issue out on the incumbent? I think this is going to be a problem for all incumbents. I think, you know, if we talk about just quickly with the federal political scene, uh, if we get to 2025 and, and this crisis has not abated, I think it will be very, very challenging for the Albanese government to to hold back some of the backlash, particularly in the mortgage belt electorates. A recent poll that we just did, for example, we asked people who are experiencing mortgage stress, how many more interest rate rises can they cope with before they have to sell their home? 35% of those who are experiencing mortgage stress said one more. So we're dealing with almost subprime type crisis here. So in Victoria, I think what will happen is there'll be an unrealistic expectation from political leaders that they should be doing something here. I think to, to the credit of the, of the Labor campaign, they've actually announced a fairly, fairly popular policy, which is uh, bringing back the retail component of power supply back into public hands. And again, Daniel Andrews has been very clever in framing that as a, you know, I'm taking this back into public hands because the electricity companies are gouging you. They made $24 billion profit last year whilst your bills keep going up. So there is an expectation. It's a matter of how that manifests itself in the next week and a half. Now, you said that uh, in voters' minds it's a, a choice uh, in terms of the main parties between which leader they uh, hate the most. What are their impressions of the two leaders? Very polarised. So there are obviously people out there that are fans of the Premier or supporters of Matthew Guy. But there are a group of people who we will define as undecided at the moment. And then when we look into that group, only a 40-odd percent will eventually vote for the major parties. The other 60% are going to break to minor parties and it will be largely driven because of their dislike of the two leaders. So hence, the Liberal campaign at the moment is their main call to arms, which is pitched directly to, to this particular cohort, is put Labor last. So they understand just how impactful this group of 
voters will be on election night in key electorates. If they can convince these voters to put Labor last and not them, they could increase the, the number of seats they're going to win. So what do they say? What do the critics say about Dan Andrews and Matthew Guy? Look, to, to sum it up, it's a mistrust and a dislike for established politics in this country. And it's manifesting in, in every political arena, I think on this occasion, obviously, in Victoria. So has the pandemic accelerated that? The answer is yes, but it was present before it. I think most jurisdictions across the country have seen this gradual decline of the major party vote. Victoria is no different. We expect the major party vote come Saturday week to be the lowest it has in, in Victorian history. I could be wrong, but I think that's where it's heading. So if we uh, just look at the minor party vote, how do you think the Greens will go? And what about the Teals, who did so well in the federal election? And what about other independent candidates? Are, are the others a big factor in this election? Yeah, so the, the, the good news if you're on the left side of politics is that this dynamic that I've been talking about is not all going to be about, you know, uh, Palmer or One Nation or those type of what you're, um, for the lack of a better term, alt-right um, minor party groupings. There is a very significant portion of these voters that are going to break to Greens, Teals and independents. So country independents in particular. So over, up in Bonambra, which is a seat that sits around Albi Rodonga, you know, an independent could be elected there at the expense of the Liberal Party. Down in Melbourne, the Teals are looking really good in, in some of these inner urban electorates that the Liberal Party once once upon a time used to define as their safe seat territory. And of course, the Greens, based on what we're seeing, could have a very, very good night. So the the, the crossbench could be quite large after the, uh, the election's done and dusted. We saw with the release of election spending that the Teals really were very cashed up. They got a lot of money, for example, from the Climate 200 Fund. But, of course, in Victoria, you have tighter restrictions on donations and what can be spent. So is this going to work against the Teals? The Teals would suggest it does. It does to a certain extent. It limits their capacity to introduce a new candidate for a state seat. But in terms of a brand, as being the brand, the Teal brand, that, that sort of community independent, uh, what I would define as a political tsunami, that's still very much alive in Melbourne and obviously in Sydney as well. That brand has been built as a result of the federal election campaign and the money that was spent there to build up that brand. So I think that in some ways, it is limiting. It does restrict their ability to produce material and advertise and so on. But in some ways, I think what happened in May has actually been a, a bit of a blessing for them as well. In isolation, if they were just facing the state election and there was no federal election during that particular year, I think that, yeah, the problem would be far more greater. Now, just finally, has this been a dirtier than usual campaign? Not really. From an advertising perspective, it's the general run-of-the-mill negative ads that you see coming from both major parties, which, by the way, you know, most, most people will tell us, look, I don't like negative advertising, but we know that through lots of testing that historically it does work. However, as a result of the pandemic, I think people have got this very strong hunger for something quite visionary for the major parties, and, and they're not quite getting that. And I think that's going to have an effect. So this negative campaigning, which they're relying on, this race to the bottom, a race of, you know, our bloke is better than, than the other bloke or worse, you know, worse, et cetera, you know, vote for the least worst option, is uh, going to sting them. 
because they probably should have focused more on a visionary message rather than a negative one. Kosumaris, thank you very much. Thank you. Samaya Alambi, you've been uh, keeping a close eye on the nitty-gritty of this campaign. Could you give us a bit of an oversight about how it's looking? It's been a very stage-managed campaign from both sides, and the way that I would describe it is just lacklustre. It doesn't feel energised at all, doesn't feel exciting at all, doesn't feel like there's anything really interesting happening. Both sides, are they've been rolling out announcements, obviously, as they do, and it's been relatively uncontroversial. We all know from the polling and the research that we've done that the two biggest issues on Victorian voters' minds going into this election is first, cost of living, and then health. And most of the policies by both major parties have been directed in those areas. So lots of cost of living announcements. The um, the coalition, for example, has their very, I was going to say popular, but I think the one policy that's really cut through voters, which is their $2 public transport fare um, as a cost of living measure, and the government has announced that they would be reviving the State Electricity Commission, which was privatised in the 1990s, and really turbocharged renewable energy investment, again, targeting cost of living and climate change. Now, you're an expert on Dan Andrews, having written a very comprehensive and I might say very readable biography on him. Is he surprising you in any way in this campaign? Not at all. I think we are seeing the archetypal Dan Andrews. Everything is very stage managed. If he gets a question that he doesn't appreciate or that he doesn't like or that's a bit tough, he responds but doesn't really answer the question. Most of all, he deflects. He says he won't be responding to it. He says that he's already addressed it ages ago and he won't be giving a fresh answer, for example. And everything has just been centred around him. Obviously, as the leader of the parliamentary party, he's been at the centre of the campaign. You know, it's been this very typical Andrews Labor government stage managed campaign trail. From your study of him, can you just give an insight into Andrews behind the scenes, as it were, things that people mightn't see watching all those media conferences throughout the pandemic and now press conferences in the campaign? So I think people have got a better insight into Daniel Andrews, particularly because of those pandemic press conferences. You know, his ruthlessness, his work ethic, his drive, his relentlessness, his his motto, which literally has been push on and push through. And I think what we saw during the pandemic was how single-minded he could be on the task at hand, how ruthless he could be in the pursuit of that task, and also how it was always a push on, push through, no matter what the cost was. I guess my that would sort of be my observations of his character, his personality. We obviously got to see it quite closely throughout the pandemic and I think we're sort of seeing it again during this election campaign as well. Do you think that these attacks we've seen on him from the Murdoch media through the Herald Sun going back to an old car accident in which uh, his wife was driving the car and and he was in the car and and also the, the fall on the stairs, have these attacks 
had any effect? No, not at all. And I think we only have to look at the um, the coverage during the 2018 election campaign, and I guess throughout the first term of the Andrews government. News Corp was highly critical of the Andrews government, um, had a lot of negative coverage of Labor and the Andrews government. And we saw Labor not only get re-elected, but win in a landslide. It was the second biggest win for the Labor Party after, I guess, Steve Brax's win in the early 2000s. I don't think it's, again, it's having little to no impact. And what it does is it distracts from the actual issues in the government. Rehashing those stories, you know, conspiracy theories and, you know, um, putting the rumour mill in overdrive essentially distracts from the real issues around how his government has been embroiled in four anti-corruption commission investigations, you know, um, quite a significant number of IBAC investigations. His government has been, you know, his record on law and order and the criminal justice system here in Victoria has been quite abysmal, I think. And the other, I guess, um, two major things are around his management of the budget. Victoria has record debt. Our debt will be more than New South Wales, Tasmania and Queensland's combined in a couple of years' time. Most of the projects have been over budget and over time. So there are real policy areas and policy failures that the media should be focusing on when you're getting distracted by rumours and conspiracy theories and accidents that happened 10 years ago. I think that does a huge disservice. But despite the litany of problems that you've uh, outlined that the government has or has had, the Liberals just are not coming within a mile of it. Why do you think this is and how is Matthew Guy performing at the moment? How is he running the campaign? I think the problem for the Liberal Party in Victoria has been for the last couple of decades, they really don't know what they've stood for They've sort of lurched from one end to another. Um, They haven't really had a coherent message. They haven't really understood the Victorian community and they haven't been really able to connect with them. Victoria is traditionally, again, particularly since the the late 90s, it has been a very progressive state. It is the most progressive state in the country. You have a Labor Party that has been a viable party of government. You've had a strong leader in not only Steve Brax, but also Daniel Andrews as well. So you've had all of everything work in the Labor Party's favour demographically and geographically. And then we've also had a Liberal Party, as I said, that just hasn't known what it stands for. And when you combine all of those things, you can see how how natural it has been for Labor to govern here in Victoria. Matthew Guy was obviously the opposition leader between 2014-2018 when when the Liberal Party was essentially demolished in the 2018 election. He has changed tack this time round. He's trying to present as a much calmer person. Um, He's talking about issues that actually matter to Victorians, which is cost of living and healthcare. But There isn't the gravitas. There's just been no cut-through message. Um, There's been no overarching or, yeah, there's I guess, yeah, there's just been no overarching theme or message of his election campaign. 
Well, this sounds a sort of heaven, I must say, for independent candidates, for Teals, for Greens, for anybody but the major parties. So how are they all looking? A lot of pollsters and um, strategists on both, both on the Liberal and the Labor side expect there to be a record number of independents elected to the parliament. Um, and I think it'll be a bit of a replica of the federal election result, not necessarily in terms of the makeup of parliament, but just the way in which voters are now flocking to minor parties. The ages resolve political monitor did a survey a couple of months ago a couple of weeks ago I think it might have been in September or October and it showed that about 30% of voters had identified had indicated that they will be supporting a minor party which is quite significant and it has been the most significant proportion of support for the independents so the greens are expected to pick up a couple of seats The Teals are expected to pick up, again, either one or two seats and perhaps we might see another non-Teal, non-Green style independent somewhere as well. So if you were chancing your arm at the moment, how do you think this election is going to pan out? I don't want to make this (laughs) observation and then have it, you know, thrown in my face a couple of weeks later, but um, I think... 48 seats for Labor, 10 seats for independence, and what does that leave us with? And 30 seats, I think, for the coalition. Well, that's so very I- precise. So <laughs> we'll give we'll give you a little margin of error, but uh, Please thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michelle. And that's all for this podcast on the Victorian election. It'll be uh, an interesting night to watch on November 26. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.